Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey everybody, this is a drug-free zone. I'm Mike. That's Tommy. How's it going? That's Kevin. What's up, y'all? That was good, right? That was my I feel like that was my best one. I might use that all the time. But it's not gonna happen. That was good. I mean, it doesn't really have anything to do with our episode. Normally you try to That's true. Like tie it in somehow. So people don't know what we're going to be talking about. Way to go. You blew it. Oh, jeez. I mean, I just liked it. I thought it was a good... Anywho. Well, I'll review the tape on that and see official ruling. Give an official ruling sometime in the next four to six weeks. But right now, Tommy, what's our topic today? We're going to be doing something a little bit different today. Um, we're going to be kind of venturing outside of the Mighty Ducks universe and back into uh, what some people might call the real world. Yes. Very special episode, and it was my idea, so if this one sucks, <laughs> then if this one sucks, then you can blame it on, just, well, actually, just still blame it on Kevin, but That's not basically what we were trying to do, you know, drum up a little mainstream publicity, because we're underground right now, and it's okay with being underground, but we got to pay the bills eventually, and what's the number one way to gain publicity? Twitter beefs. So, I was looking at the Rotten Tomato scores of the Mighty Ducks movies and realized that, you know, the New York Times, they did not like the Mighty Ducks. And who doesn't like the Mighty Ducks? So, what we're going to do, we're going to read some reviews from the New York Times and hopefully break them down so we can get into a beef with them on Twitter. Okay. This is the first one. It's by Janet Maslin. You're not going to read the entire review, are you? We're going to go line by line, and then we're going to discuss. Okay. Is that not... Okay, fine. I mean, do you have a different idea? No, I mean, but I do think it would help if you uh, tell the reviewers, if you want to pause the podcast and grab the movie review, it's written by Janet Maslin, M-A-S-L-I-N, for the Mighty Ducks. Just that would probably help you. So you don't get lost. And you can follow along better. Yeah. So do that if you want to. If not, then just keep rolling. Okay. Janet Maslin, October 2nd, 1992. Starting now. <laughs> <laughs> All right. The Muddy Ducks is a family-minded comedy about a reluctant coach and a rotten hockey team. It's certainly better than its title. Let's stop right there. Better than its title. It's a great title. It's a great title. Yeah. You can't argue. I mean. What title does she want out of this? Does she want it to have some kind of like groundbreaking like Gordon's Boys or something stupid like that? I don't know. Or like the Bad News Ducks. Yeah. She alludes to it in the very next line. Why don't you finish reading the the opening paragraph and we can get back to that. Okay. But it's not in a league with the Bad News Bears. An obvious model for this story of how one surly grown-up. Parentheses, Emilio Estevez, and parentheses, 
and a bunch of poorly <laughs> behaved kids can help build one another's character and also, not so coincidentally, embark on a winning streak. Okay, so immediately she doesn't like the title. Yeah. Which, I don't know, I guess it's difficult for us because I don't think I saw The Mighty Ducks until I had already heard of heard of it. So I was like, oh, Mighty Ducks, yeah, yeah, everyone knows about that. So I'm trying to put myself in that same mold. It's like, you know, what the hell is this about? That's true. Like, by the time I, I remember The Mighty Ducks, the Mighty, I'm pretty sure there was already a Mighty Ducks hockey team. Yeah. Which brings up the point, like, if it's good enough for a hockey team, it's good enough for a movie. Like, it was the movie title was so good they named a hockey team after it. So really, how good can this title, how or how bad can this title really be? Maybe she thought it was a little formulaic. I guess later on you have the little giants, and it's just kind of like you grab their their team name and add some kind of you know adjective in front of it. But obviously the Mighty Ducks worked out. So yeah. I mean, obviously there's some names in sports that are better than others, but. Yeah, okay. Moving on. Part of the impetus behind the Mighty Ducks is to show how Gordon Bombay, the obnoxious yuppie lawyer played by Mr. Estevez, abandons the victory-crazy attitude that has given him a vanity license plate reading Just Win. After Gordon is arrested for driving under the influence, he is sentenced to do community service with peewee hockey players. He then undergoes the predictable change of heart, adopting a philosophy best described as MIG-ZEN, concentration not strength, he advises his players, prompting one of them to mention the karate kid, Averman. Gordon renounces the cutthroat thinking of his courtroom days. Um, I mean, we talked about episode one, about Gordon and whether he really changed, but we gotta, we'll come back to that after this paragraph. Quote, we may win, we may not. Unquote, he tells one boy during an all-important game. But that doesn't matter, Charlie. What matters is that we're here. Spoiler alert. Uh, the film is remarkable, remarkably oblivious to the fact that if the team weren't hell-bent on a championship, young moviegoers would be significantly less interested in its adventures. And she does make a good point here, which I brought up way back in episode one, that Gordon is still hell-bent on winning that championship just win baby you know but tommy you disagree with that do you have any issue with how she describes this? i just i just have an, have an issue because it's it's more like she's saying oh this is so obvious it's like what do you expect like honestly From it's like team. oh this team is probably gonna win the championship it's like no shit it's like this is a a pg movie by disney and you're uh you know essentially saying that it's like oh it's so obvious that they're gonna win it's like no shit they're gonna win it's a little unnecessarily snippy. Yeah, it's just like, have you, have you seen a movie before? And it's just like, this person obviously has a, and like, you know, obviously has a huge crush on the Bad News Bears, which, you know, it's a fantastic movie and does kind of, you know, break some of the, the elements. Just, and it kind of introduces like the, the surly, you know, drunk coach or whatever in this terrible team. And so this is kind of like following the formula. And so maybe this person just is sick of the formula. But this isn't the kind of, kind of movie that can like break the formula. It's true. Like, it wouldn't have worked. And even since, like, has there been, like, like a, a fiction work? I mean, you could look at, oh, Friday Night Lights where they lose the big game, whatever. But that was, you know, based... Spoiler alert. <laughs> anyway, and that was, of course, took a lot of liberties with the true story. But, it was, you know, it's it's not the the formula you would you kind of come to expect from these these sports movies. Like, remember the Titans, obviously, also based on a true story. But it's they're going to win. Mm-hmm. And so, it's like, can you think of any of these kids' movies where they don't win? Yeah, I feel like kids would be devastated if the Ducks lost to the Hawks. Like, what, 
what kind of message are you sending to these kids' futures? You, you can't argue that they need a little dose of reality, you know, early on in their lives. I mean, you can well, Yeah, well, you don't go to the movies for reality. If, if I want to go see a f- work of fiction, I want it to, you know, kind of get lost in it. If I want to see a documentary, that's when I want to learn something. You know, I'll watch the, the ESPN 30 for 30s if I want to, you know, learn about losing. I'll watch the Little Giants and the Mighty Ducks if I want to watch Rick Moranis and Emilio Estevez get into hijinks. Agreed. Agreed. All right. Moving on. The Mighty Ducks, with a screenplay by Stephen Brill, takes a solidly by-the-numbers approach to all the expected breakthroughs the team experiences. Whoa. Yeah. It's a big accusation there. Uh, When Gordon, who was himself a hockey player as a boy, decides to skate again, the film gives him a wise old mentor, Joss Ackland, a.k.a. Hans, and a solitary skating scene at dawn. When the Ducks receive enough financing to allow them to buy first-class hockey equipment, there's a frolicsome scene in a sporting goods score, complete with the shot of the cash register in its total. What's wrong with that scene? I thought that was a great scene. I thought it was fun. Yeah, it was... I thought, like, we got to see the kids' personalities. We got to see the team come together. But now you're, like, kind of being passive-aggressive about their fro- frolicking in the store and, like, the total. I yeah, I know. think they kind of missed the point. Of, like, these kids have had nothing their whole lives, and now they finally get a chance to, like, I can have something nice. And they're really kind of discovering this for the first time. And it's not like, you know, like where money is, like, driving this all. It's kind of like, wow, this is great stuff, and we're having fun. I'm with, you know, with our friends. We're finally getting to do something nice. And so they're kind of, you know, appreciating it even more. That was deep. I didn't even thought of it like that. Yeah. She's, like, she's like thinks this is, like, some kind of movie trope but like if you took all those kids and put you just took a bunch of poor kids and gave them a bunch of stuff like that they'd never had before i feel like it'd be very similar i would be frolicsome exactly very frolicsome frolicsome all right keep going here some of these episodes have an unduly nasty edge as when bullies taunt the ducks or the ducks try out their new skates by knocking down shoppers at the mall Wow, <laughs> that was something. She did not like the the knocking down shoppers. Well, it's very interesting though, because she goes when bullies taunt the ducks. Okay, that happens in every school, and so you get you know, this is something that actually does happen, and so you're kind of pissed at all these. It's this formula where where ducks are just gonna win, but here's you know there's trouble where yes bullies exist, and you're upset about that, and then obviously the pushing down shoppers. I'm all yeah, that would be. It's not like, like they deliberately went around the mall pushing down a bunch of shoppers. <laughs> yeah, though. No. They were just... What, maybe one gets knocked into the fountain? Yeah, what? and they steal one guy's toupee. But that would be in D2. Yeah, that's in D2. Yeah. But... They definitely reuse that kind of formula. <laughs> What's the <laughs> skating there, scene? There are about four of those. Yeah. It's episodes. like, uh, we got to shave 10 minutes off of this thing. Let's oh, get a yeah. good skating montage where they yeah. steal stuff. Yeah, they like to have Gordon skating by himself as well. All right, where were we? All right. But what's missing from the film, even during its most rambunctious moments, is a distinct personality. Mr. Estevez gives a low-keyed, likable performance, but the duck themselves, la- but like the ducks themselves, he lacks color. Shot at Gordon right yeah. there. I thought Gordon's a good personality. I thought he, you know, he calmed down when he wanted to calm down, and he, when he had to play it out big, and give the Oscar-worthy speech, he gave it. Ducks fly together. Will you mess with one duck, you mess with the whole flock. So, all right. The film's young actors appear to have been chosen more for size, too fat, too tall, etc., and ethnic mix than their distinct character traits. What's uh, wrong? I'll agree with that, I guess. Yeah, that, I mean, that might be 
a little like uh, kind of stereotypical, you know, fat kid, tall kid, klutz kid, nerdy you know. kid, you know. Uh, but I mean, they're just child actors, really. That's true. I mean, you're not going to find Haley Joel Osment, you know, by the dozen, right? Shout out. Out. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just saying, what's wrong with bringing people from different backgrounds together? I and think making them work together. Yeah, and it's just like obviously the the film is is taking you know it's got a very much teamwork approach and and that's kind of the, the crux of the film is like and you kind of overcoming adversity and so you present all these kids from different backgrounds. It's like oh, I can identify with Carp. I can identify with Charlie because you know I'm you know I don't have a dad, or I can identify with Peter because you know I'm short, or I can identify with. Connie, because I'm a girl, but I like sports, things like that. So it's kind of like, yeah, it points it out that, yeah, they were grabbed for the kind of the, the stereotypical role, but you think you got to mention it's like, this is obviously, you know, kind of conveying that message. And maybe, the, you know, they just didn't like that. You know, not, not every movie is going to be, you know, I don't know. What's a good movie? My Chinatown. <laughs> All right. Uh, yada, yada, yada about the director. And skipping ahead, the screenplay also includes duck jokes, which wear thin almost immediately. Disagree. I mean, I quack all the time, and it's 20 years later, so they didn't wear thin for most people. Yeah, that's that's a bullshit. That's a bullshit line right there. Yeah, Janet, get better. Uh, <laughs> Mr. Estevez is asked not only to rally the troops with the cry of, look, it's time to play smart hockey, duck hockey. That's just good coaching there. But also to quack angrily at Joseph Summer, aka Gerald Ducksworth, who also who appears briefly as his boss. Solid scene. It was a great scene. Among the film's other duckisms are a hockey movie that has a boy skating in a flying V as if migrating, and Gordon's defiant claim about a rival team. They know that if they mess with one duck, they got to mess with the whole flock. He says, sustaining a straight face expression that is nothing short of a miracle. That's right? a shot right there. <laughs> that is a. You also got to keep in mind that he's talking to kids and he's a coach. Like, coaches talking to 12-year-olds have to do stuff like that. That's true. I mean. Yeah, I, I, th- I feel like that's a really unnecessary shot. Yeah, and that was, right, that was the end of the article. She just throws that in right at the end there. Weak. Weak sauce, Janet. She, she, tried to, she tried to go with the drop the mic moment. And, I mean, I guess she succeeded, but I don't think it was necessary or called for at all. Exactly. Janet, we're officially in a beef. Get ready. Get your Twitter troops ready, because we're coming. All right. Detail. This is by, uh, again, New York Times. Apparently, Janet was not given the opportunity to review Detail. They probably hated that review so much because everyone disagreed with it that they said, you're only reviewing you know, artsy films now, because that's what you want to do, apparently. All right. Um, this one's by Karen James. March 25th, 1994. Um... The first paragraph's kind of bad, so I'm skipping it. What makes the head skip... No, you can't skip it. You have to to read the entire thing Ah. if you're doing this. I mean, I had to skip ahead for the last one. All right, fine. Any movie can inspire merchandising tie-ins like t-shirts and dolls. The 1992 Disney hit The Mighty Ducks is the only film in history to have inspired the creation of an actual hockey team, the Disney-owned Anaheim Mighty Ducks of the National Hockey League. It makes the head spin just to think about professional hockey players wearing their bright green jerseys with the cartoonish team logo inspired by a children's movie, a scowling duck in a goalie's mask with hockey sticks crossed behind them like a kitty's skull and crossbones. Yeah, they're tough. Now, what were the, the Ducks' original uniforms in the NHL? Were they the green 
The, I mean, they weren't like the District Five green, but they had they had like they had the traditional like D two Ducks jerseys. Yeah. But they also had like a teal one with like a Mighty Ducks like goalie like diving out from the side. It's there's like I don't know what the original original ones were because were they they're had, the like, ones from D two that they came out with, right? Those were their like main okay. ones. So yeah, but she obviously I didn't. Those were great unis. Yeah, yeah. seemed fine to me, especially like '90s. Teal was in it in the '90s. So, all right. What makes the head spin even more is the message of the movie sequel. The point of D two, the Mighty Ducks, is that commercialism in sports is bad. Uh I'm gonna disagree with this. I feel like the point of the D two was not to lose yourself in once you make it, like Gordon did. He lost. He did it. He lost himself. He and he lost the team in part because he he got he got kind of like famous basically. It's just basically remember where you came from. Well, I think that kind of goes into the commercialism is bad. It's just like Emilio gets like that or Bombay gets like that because you know he starts getting all the he gets a big head because of Hendrix, which is you know behind the commercialism, and he's talking about like getting the loaf or whatever. And you know the the message is like hey, don't forget where you came from, but you know kind of. Going more, you know, I agree with that. Just like, yeah, commercialism in sports is bad. And I mean, Charlie's got that stupid line about why can't we be USA Ducks? Which I mean, which is stupid. What you're, you know, be Team USA. I mean, we we've talked about yeah. our dislike with that line for a long time. But you know, he says, oh, this has Hendrix all over it, and so it's it's an obvious like play. It was like, yeah, this isn't what you know hockey and sports is about. It's about you know playing for fun and remembering where you came from. But I would point out. That Hendricks gave them the opportunity to fly to Los Angeles and have this great experience, and and they gave them all this equipment and stuff. So there's a kind of two sides to it. And and Karen, C I C A R Y N, did not see that side. Well, maybe this is a little bit ahead of its time because you know they they give all these kids this opportunity, and then they've got this huge pressure to go succeed because they're wearing the red, white, and blue. It's if you look at like college athletes, you say, oh, well, these kids are getting to go to school for free, and you know then there's the pressures, of course, of you, know, you better perform, otherwise we're taking your scholarship away. And that's kind of what uh, what Tibble says to to Bombay is that's like true. you lost. You know we're not here to support a loser. And so I think it's really ahead of its time, and maybe okay. Karen perhaps missed a little bit of that. And and they also never really take they never really take their foot off the pedal of the whole commercialism. I mean it it's still there throughout the whole movie. You know, I mean it's not so much that the commercialism itself is bad. It's kind of I, I guess to the same point like Gordon kind of getting full of himself. But I, I, I don't think it's so much so pointed at commercialism being bad because Hendrix is there the entire time. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. That never goes away. It's not like they decide, oh, we're going to you know, ditch Hendrix and do this on our you know. Well, they do like ditch the jerseys. They grab new jerseys that don't have Hendrix on it. So there's probably all kinds of contracts that are being Which broken. Tibbles probably lost his job. Yeah. I mean, he probably killed himself yeah. afterwards. Jeez. John Went Tibbles. On a really R. bad R. bender. Shout out. Yeah, pull one out for him. Anyway. Okay. We got a little. Okay. Emilio Estevez returns as Gordon Bombay, who in the original was a high-powered lawyer arrested for drunken driving and forced to do community service by coaching a ragtag children's team. Of course, he recaptured his boyhood love of the game. That was not set in stone, Karen. Uh, well, of course. Yeah, well. that was pretentious. And D2, when the Ducks traveled from Minnesota to Los Angeles to play in the Junior Goodwill Games, Bombay loses his sportsmanlike bearings. The evidence of his distractions that he becomes a peewee league Pat Riley with slick back hair, designer suits, and many commercial endorsements. That's a shot at Pat Riley. Pat Riley was a good coach. It's true. You know, 
I feel like if you talk to Pat Riley's players, he would say they would say, "Oh yeah, we love Pat Riley. Like he he made us grow." Yeah, yeah. So shot at Pat. Plus great hair, great yeah. hair. All right. Uh, good luck to parents trying to explain this to children while standing in line to buy their Mighty Ducks hockey shirts. All right, commercialism, whatever. D2 Falls a Sister Act 2 Law of Sequels. This is my favorite line. It's <laughs> twice as sugary and half as entertaining as the original. I mean, I've not seen Sister Act 2. Um, I, if I have, it's been many, many years. Well, what I think is interesting is if you talk to anyone, like anyone who's seen like the Mighty Ducks trilogy, they'll say number two is my favorite. I, I, D2 is by far my favorite. Yeah. Now, I looked at the, I looked at the Rotten Tomatoes scores, and... It's Rotten Tomatoes for critics. It's fifteen percent for D one, twenty one percent for D two, and then it's twenty percent for D three. Top critics zero on all of them, or there's not enough reviews for them to go. And then the audience I thought was interesting: sixty five percent D one, fifty nine percent D two, forty five percent D three. So, but that's just the Rotten Tomatoes people. So. We could have a beef with the Rotten Tomatoes audience raiders. Come too. at us, yo. Yeah. Hit us up on Twitter at Quack Attack Pod. We're ready. All right. Back. Twice as sugar and half as entertaining as a sequel. It's a shot. That's a shot. It's really I, a shot at Sister Act 2. That's <laughs> true. Yeah. I would say D2 is twice as sugary and twice as entertaining as the original. And but as twice there, as entertaining as Sister Act 2, I imagine. There a, if there's a Sister Act podcast out there give us a shout uh we'd love to have you on yeah get your thoughts <laughs> that's a great point great point uh you can go to the quackattack.com and email <laughs> us all right back back to the in the first mighty ducks bombay started off as a man who said i hate hockey and i don't like kids which left plenty of room for a transformation at the d2 he's already soft-hearted He's hired back to coaching when a manufacturer of a hockey equipment offers to sponsor the team at the Goodwill Games. The Ducks go to Los Angeles where they're joined by a handful of demographically and ethnically diverse new players. They alluded to this in the in the first one, in the first review, if you remember. So I guess they're kind of... I wonder if they're assuming people have read the review for the first one. Like, oh, remember when we talked about this? It's like the same formula. Mm-hmm. The team, or the combined team, includes a Hispanic player from Florida, a Korean American former figure skater, a Stetson wearing boy from Texas, a couple of black players, and two girls. The group is proudly and loudly referred to as Team USA by everyone in a rah rah tone that suggests they are all auditioning to become network sports announcers. All right, a lot to unpack there. Uh, can I just, it, why, it, in both reviews so far, it seems like. They're anti-diversity. Exactly. For, for whatever reason. I don't... I it don't seems like it. they're anti... Um, perhaps if, they, if there was more, like, character development, it seems like that's what they really hate. It's like, yeah, you can have, like, a Hispanic kid from Florida, or you, know, you could have a fat kid who's, you know, kind of stupid. But if it's, like... If they have, like, some interesting lines or, like, get some, you know, background going, but they don't have time to do that. And so that's what they're really pissed about, I think. I mean, it's a 90-minute movie. You've got 12 kids on the team. You can go into, like, one... And so you just kind of pick this stereotype of Dwayne, you know, oh, shucks, Texan, you know, who's a, got the rope and the, Shout out. And the hat. <laughs> and so, I mean, really, I'm sure if we saw the extended director's cut, which is probably like six hours long, they probably go all into everyone's background, which is, of course, what we're trying to do with this podcast. Yeah. And they completely missed Don Tibble's marketing ploy there That's to true. get kids from 
ethnically diverse and geographically diverse areas to bring in the the broader audience to this Junior Goodwill Games. Uh, yeah, I think Miss um, Karen James really needed to examine Mr. Tibble's role in this more, and she probably would have appreciated what he was trying to do. And the message that they were sending was, is like, yeah, she hit it on earlier, which is the commercialization, but then she's, you know, kind of, oh, well, they're bringing in just kind of a bunch of stereotypes in here. It's like, no, they're, like, it's because of the movie that they're doing this, not because of the, you know, the writing. Yeah. If, if only this podcast had been around in 1994, she would have been better informed. Exactly. It's true. Because uh, we would have gotten a pre-screening, I'm sure. That's true. <laughs> we should mention that Karen mentions that Kenny was Korean-American. Now, if you if you listen to our last episode about Kenny Wu, there's a discussion about this. And Kevin or Tommy said that he just went with Korean-American, and we disagreed. But props to Tommy. Yes. You, according to Karen, you got it right. Although I did look up the the surname Wu, and it seems like it's overwhelmingly Chinese. Um, but I guess Korean-American, uh, Karen James obviously does her research, I assume. So, <laughs> Unless she was just kind of looking at him. Which, wow. Yeah. Kenny Wu, if you're listening and you'd like to clear this up, give us a shout. Exactly. You know where to find us. Quackadactic.com. Contact us. Uh, now, I did not understand her whole line about... The group is proudly and loudly referred to as Team USA by everyone, a rah-rah tone that suggests they are all auditioning to become network sports announcers. I mean, they are representing the United States in the Junior Goodwill Games. People love cheering for the United States. Why is this cheering for Team USA like a bad thing? Like, and, like, referring to them as Team USA in quotes, like, what else would you like them to be referred to as? She wants them to be USA Ducks, apparently. Yeah. yeah. Her and Charlie. <laughs> all right. Uh, okay. It's doubtful whether children would care about the corrupting influence of Bombay's big beachfront house, but they, if they make it through the long wind-up, D2 comes, D2 comes through with the kind of cute kids-on-ice action that made the first film a hit. One player's secret weapon is a wild knuckle puck. Another player skates fast but has trouble stopping. The Texan lasts on someone from the opposing team during a game. When the players are rambunctious, they are kind of realistic characters children can identify with. D2 gets into trouble when the team is forced to be goody-goody. The players realize long before Bombay does that, the true meaning of sports has nothing to do with appearing on a cereal box. So I guess she does kind of go back to what you were saying earlier. It's, you know, remember where you came from, and it's not about, like, you know, publicity and everything. Like, playing sports is just, like, playing to have fun. And so I guess she kind of comes full circle, but it took her a long time to, to mention that. Yeah. I'll give her credit for saying that the kids are lovable. And, you know, the on-ice action was fun. All right. Uh, the film also conveniently forgets that coaches with slick back hair and designer suits have been known to tout team spirit and win. There we go. Now she's back on the Pat Riley for the win. But, I, yeah, why did you even bring that up in the first place, though? Agreed. Uh, but maybe it's best not to try to make sense of D2. Young viewers will be drawn back to joining the team's rallying cry. Quack, quack, quack. Another just shot right at the end of the article there. Don't try to make sense of D2. I think it makes perfect sense, but... I think what she's saying is, like, don't look and overanalyze it, which some people we know tend to do, I guess. Karen. <laughs> Karen. <laughs> and, and us. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, we found plenty of things to talk about it, and I think we've, we've uh, shown that people do like to analyze it. So um, you're wrong, Karen. So, yeah, and you tried to analyze it, too. So, I mean... Whatever. All right. D3. 
All right. October 4th, 1996. Lawrence Van Gelder coming through here. I'm going to immediately assume this guy's a big hockey fan because he's Dutch or something. Yeah. All right. If F. Scott Fitzgerald had been born in 1966 instead of 1896, his predilection for his heroic sports fantasies, his familiarity with the cruelties and joys of prep school life, his keen sense of social stratification, his chronic financial woes, and his reliance on the monetary rewards of commercial fiction in Hollywood might well have led him to write a movie like D3, The Mighty Ducks. Wow. That's a long sentence, first of all. <laughs> kind of run-on sentence. Bringing up F. Scott Fitzgerald is interesting strategy. Like, that was so much. Like, he kind of confused me. I'm not going to lie with that whole thing. But he's obviously, he's either smart or he's trying to pretend he's smart. But moving on. The second sequel to The Mighty Ducks of 1992 tells how the boys and girls of the ethnically diverse Ducks fare when they arrive at Eden Hall Academy, founded in 1903. I did not know that. Fun fact. As full scholarship students, thanks to their victory in the Junior Goodwill Games in D2, The Mighty Ducks in 1994. So, again, ethnically diverse. But not only has their old coach, the liquor label, <laughs> that's funny, Gordon Bay, uh, Princess Emilia Estevez, gone off to a new assignment, but the Ducks are fa- are also faced with the hostility of the prep school's state champion varsity hockey team and a snobbish board of trustees with a win-or-get-lost attitude toward the freshman arrivists. When what seems even worse, the Freeling Ducks have a no-nonsense new coach, Orion, Jeffrey Nordling, who, like Jack Lemaire of the New Jersey Devils, worships at the altar of defense. This guy's a hockey fan. Yeah. yeah. You he, can tell. I think, I think he's a big uh, Mighty Ducks fan as well. I yeah. Mean, I, I think that comes through in his writing, even though even though it might not read that way. I think deep down, loves the Mighty Ducks. This guy loved D2. Yeah. <laughs> he loved it. Uh, he does make a good point about the reliance. I mean, D3, one of the big problems is it emphasizes like the trap it celebrates like the trap game that basically forced the nhl's lockout in like 2004 so uh solid point there by lawrence but i don't i don't know why you're bringing up ethnically diverse again i thought we went over this like two (laughs) years ago (laughs) all right uh, as D3 charts the downs and ups of the Ducks en route to the predictable outcome of their big game against the arrogant varsity, the team members also battle the bullies off the ice, divided in their attitude toward their new coach, fight among themselves, drop out, drop in, and grow up. All right, lots of spoilers in there, but <laughs> anywho. I do feel like he's praising the, the film kind of like almost as like a growing of age or a coming of age film. It's like, oh, this is, you know, the next stand by me because these kids are you know, doing their thing. He doesn't really say, like, this is, like, he does mention, like, oh, this is predictable, but he says, on the way, there's a lot of good messages, I guess. So I think Lawrence gets it. Yeah, Lawrence definitely gets it. More than Karen and and the first lady. Janet. 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 All right. hate Janet. As it replays the tried-and-true formula, emphasizing discipline, teamwork, and the value of education, D3 touches glancingly on such issues as the exploitation of important student-athletes and the willingness of governing boards to use and abuse them to enhance their luster of the schools. Boom. He, he gets it. Deep Thought yeah. by Lawrence Van Gelder. D3 filmed largely at the College of St. Catherine and Fitzgerald's native St. Paul offers plenty of youthful pranks, lots of sight gags, hints of teenage romance budding in the 
co-ed at Eden Hall and enough to combat and enough combat on the ice to please young hockey fans. I would argue that there's not enough uh, hockey in the third one. That's true. I agree. They only really play two games. And uh, and maybe that's why the first two reviewers didn't like the first two as much because there was too much hockey and not enough like off the ice like kind of character development, things like that. Like you, we really get huge in you know Charlie and Fulton in the third one, and and it's really kind of just there's the the stereotypical characters in the first two, but we're able to learn more about the individuals in the third one, and so maybe that's why. Lawrence really is kind of taken to three, where it's less of just, hey, there's these kids that play hockey. Let's watch a lot of hockey. It's more of the about the kids, what they do when they're not playing hockey. Which is an interesting take because we all, like, everyone kind of assumes D3 is the worst. Yeah, D3 is definitely the, the worst. And, you know, I was, when I remember first seeing it, I was just like, I wish there was more hockey in that, you know, because I'm here to see a sports movie. I'm, I'm not here to watch, you know, these kids cry about, you know, being freshmen. I remember loving D3 when I first saw it. I loved it. And I, I don't know. I mean, since I, I, I definitely, I don't know. When I was a kid, I, I loved D three. I don't know why, but mm. the, the hockey thing that didn't really make a whole lot of difference to me. I don't know. Okay. Well, maybe you're weird. <laughs> All right. Plausible. <laughs> Shots fired. All right. With story elements built around hockey jerseys, the choice of a new nickname for the Eden Hall Warriors, and a guest appearance by Paul Correa, star of the Anaheim Mighty Ducks. This latest installment in a popular Disney film franchise also serves as a less than subtle marketing device for the Disney-owned professional team at the outset of a new National Hockey League season. Wow! Yeah, uh, we haven't haven't really touched on that. I mean, that's a good—that's a pretty solid point, though. I mean, you—I mean, you can't argue with that. I mean, it's pretty—it's pretty obvious, I guess. Uh Yeah, trying to get hockey enthusiasm up. Although you'd think they'd show some more hockey. That's true. If they really wanted to do that, but yeah, or maybe just Paul's a big fan of Eden Hall Academy. That's true. I mean, alum, he, yeah. alum. All right, uh, D three directed by Robert Lieberman and written by Stephen Brill and Jim Bernstein is unmistakably business as usual. That's a little bit of a shot there, right at yeah. the end. I but. think it's it's an oversimplification. Is because it if it was business as usual, there'd be a lot more I think hockey elements and of them like kind of growing on the ice. It's like there's a lot of you know, like I like I said earlier, them growing off the ice, and you really don't have that much in in the first two. Yeah, and it kind of contradicts what he said earlier, like with you know, the motifs of you know, of uh, getting like his, board members using yeah. athletes, and I, I mean, I don't, I think it kind of contradicts what he had previously written in his review. So I don't, I don't really get why that's there. Maybe he wishes they went more into that. Maybe he wishes that like faux courtroom scene and and the with the board of directors was a little bit more intense and not just Gordon showing up and kind of saving the day. Yeah, mm-hmm. but then again, you know, they only have a limited number of days to shoot. So yeah, at I'm, this uh, academy in Saint Paul. Now, College of Saint Catherine. Yeah, I just think. Well, New York Times just loves to take shots right at the end, mm-hmm. so maybe he was just looking for a shot there. I bet you his editor made him put that in because he obviously loved the movie. Yeah. So we don't really have a beef with Lawrence here, no, do we? We're good with Lawrence. Lawrence, you're cool. Uh, Janet and Karen. and They missed the point. Yeah. They were well written, but they missed the point. So we got beef with you, and we got beef with your the New York Times movies just in general, aside from Lawrence. Everybody about Lawrence, basically. So we're coming after you on Twitter. Uh in the meantime, for all those that don't have beasts with us, 
crackattack.com. You got iTunes, give us five stars. Write a review. Write a review and tell us how you feel about Janet and Karen and even Lawrence. And then on Twitter, where we'll be very active, apparently, in our Twitter beef. So look out for that, at Quake Attack Pod. And uh, remember, ducks fly together. Ducks fly together. Quack, quack. <laughs>